Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to In the Finest Hour, a 40 pig competitive podcast about teaching you skills and strategies you can use in about an hour. I am your host, as always, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and I have with me from the left hand mic, Shaylin Allen, our good podcast host. Meow. And from the right hand mic, Joshua Death, our evil podcast host. Rough. Okay, all right, I see where we're going with this. <laughs> Does this mean you are all pet sitting? <laughs> I was kind of going to the pet cemetery, so. Ooh. He's the evil one, Sean. What were you expecting? <laughs> I mean, a better movie than that, but. <laughs> Ugh. I am actually pet sitting right now because my sister is having her baby. Mm-hmm. Congrats. And hence, we are all recording from separate places this time. Which is a little bit unusual for us. Usually not how we do it. Shit could get crazy. <laughs> it could get a little bit crazy. I half expect a cat to try to jump on my head during this podcast. Oh, I've got one curled up at my feet, so we're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> These cats are naked, though, so they're extra fancy. I mean, my cat doesn't wear clothes either. Your cat doesn't like fur. <laughs> yes, that's true. Since we're talking about tournaments this week, I wanted to throw something out to the two of you. Was What are your pre-tournament routines or rituals? How do you deal with the beginning of a tournament? I know both of you can sometimes have some, some ways of dealing with stress. I was kind of curious uh, what that was. Shailene, you want to start us off here? Sure. So I start off with my usual go find a quiet, somewhat isolated spot and spend like probably about one to two minutes legitimately autistic flapping and reminding myself it's not the end of the world and the stress goes away because that's my anti-stress machine mm -hmm. the other thing i do is i'll just otherwise just run around and be like because e -e 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 i really like 40k and that's just what i do <laughs> she's not joking i've actually seen her do that oh yeah no i have as well <laughs> <laughs> josh how about yourself how do you deal with uh, kind of the stress at the beginning of a tournament I actually want to point out that my pre-tourney routine has definitely evolved over the years. And it's one of the things I actually enjoy the most right now is I love sitting and watching all of the people doing the exact same crap I used to do when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess you could say I like being that old crotchety dwarf that these young pups just don't know what they're doing these days. And when I was young, no. <laughs> One of the things I remember back in the day was, you know, you go to a tournament, and what's the first thing everybody does when they get to a tournament, right? They pull their army out, and they set it up the most beautiful it is going to look all weekend, because they spend, like, 20 minutes making sure every model's in the right spot, it looks all sexy, you know, and the whole time they're doing this, there's already people walking around, some of them even in groups, right? They're walking around and sizing up the competition. Oh, yeah. Looking at this guy's list of, oh, you know, that's crap. He's only got five Storm Ravens or whatever, you know? Like, they're walking around and they're doing this. And then, of course, once you get your stuff set up, what do you do, right? They all go and they walk around. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite things to do is I like to walk. I, I pick a spot. I don't even pull my army out yet often uh, unless I'm running something like an LVO where I have, like, you know, 800 models to pull out. But then I actually go and I sit down in front of someone else's army that they've left. And I just watch the room. Mm -hmm. And I just relax. And the reason I sit in front of someone else's army is for that exact reason. Because everyone's all like, what's this guy running? I'm like, I don't know. It's not mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
And it was actually accidental at, I think it was LVO this past year. It was, uh, I was having lunch with some guys, and we were just sitting down. And I sat down in front of someone's army that was for sale. Hmm. You know, they had a literally a little placard in front of their army that says, cash sale, this, this right here. And some guy walked up and was like, would you take this for it? And I'm like, I would, but it's not mine. So I'm going to have to incline myself to say no. Um, <laughs> but So that was what I used to do. Now it's, for me, more than anything, uh, there's two things that I used to prep, especially when it comes to the stress, because the stress is a real thing. One, I have a playlist. I actually have a 40K playlist. It's a tourney prep playlist that I have on my phone. Mm-hmm that I will listen to leading up to a tournament. And over the years, it has evolved. The playlist has evolved. It used to originally be a whole bunch of stuff like Queen, I Want It All. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there was a couple WWE intro songs on there at some point. You know, it used to be a lot of that. Now it's just, honestly, it's more calming. Like, it's more just kind of just relax, get my head in the game, chill. And the big one I do, the most important thing I do that I will not forget at any event I go to is I get the player pack, I sit down, and I read it, even if I've read it a thousand times leading up to it. Because you go to enough events, it's always that one little sentence on this one mission that you assumed was this way because you've done so many events like that, but it just happened to be a little different. And that's the shit that costs you a game, especially in like round four or five or something. You're like, oh wait, that's how that works? Oh my god. And you're midway through the game and you just lost because of it because you didn't read. Mm-hmm. So that's a big one for me. I've been caught with my pants down too many times by that, that my number one ritual every tournament I go to is read the player packet mm-hmm. right before the event. Yeah, that's that's pretty good advice. I I don't need to do that as much anymore because so many tournaments do just play things straight by the ITC player pack these days. But not all tournaments do it, so definitely if it's if it's any tournament where it's not just straight ITC, I will sit down and make sure I know what's going on. I find it interesting to hear what everyone's kind of ways of dealing with tournament stress are, because I'm a relatively low-stress person in terms of, like, tournaments and, and a lot of that sort of thing. Um, I tend not to get as worked up about the day one stuff, because I will spend you know, the whole night before reading army lists if those are posted. But I know that some people like Colin Sherman and some of the other guys, like, they find themselves, like, worked up over stuff like that, whereas I find it kind of relaxing to be able to just, like, browse through the the army lists well ahead of time and get a feel for them so I don't feel like I'm getting surprised by anything. Yep, that's my prep for day two. Like, my tournament routine actually starts before I even leave the house when I'm packing up my army, if I'm going to get real specific there. Mm -hmm. I have the I'm leaving a house routine, so my mind gets in a place where it's more inclined to sleep when I'm not at home. Right. Then I have the pre-tournament talk with Sean in the hotel the night before, because we always do that. And if we don't do that, I get really stressed the next day. Yes. Because my routine's disrupted, that's not cool. Oh, and we talked a lot about about a lot of that stuff when we were talking about our going to tournaments episode. So if people are interested in hearing about some of that kind of stuff, I suggest you check that episode out. Yes. So now that we've talked about pre-tournament, let's talk about post-tournament, because that's also a very important half of things. And it's, the in fact, the topic of our episode this week. Ah, yes. After you finish a tournament, there's always, for pretty much everyone, the sort of decompression time. You know, you get in the car, you drive home, or you head to the airport, or whatever it may be. But you you typically have somewhere between two and eight hours to kind of, like, go back in the immediate aftermath, and then sort of in the, the days following the tournament as well to look back on what happened and kind of reflect on things. And if you are playing competitively for, as most people 
listening to the podcast probably do, you're hoping to look back at your performance and how you did and see if you can't maybe improve on that and look to where you were, what your failings were and what your successes were and hopefully work your way upwards from there. So this is going to be an episode that hopefully gives you some of the tools that you can use to more effectively look back at how your tournament went and find out what the questions you need to ask yourself about your tournament performance are. We can't answer those questions for you, but we can hopefully give you the right questions to be looking at. This is an episode about, here's how you approach the analysis. We can't perform it, but this is how you approach it. Yeah. Yes, because it's, it's going to be very specific to what your games were. But we can put out the idea of, like, okay, did you do this thing? Did you do this other thing? And hopefully give you the factors that you need to be looking at to determine whether you did well or poorly. Mm-hmm. Shaylin brought this up uh, a little bit earlier, and I think it's a really good point to make, is uh, that you need to separate your feelings about the tournament from your performance at the tournament. I hype on this a lot because I am a person with poor emotional filters, so I am emotional after a 40k event, regardless of whether I want to be. So I need time to let go. Yeah, and I think that's fairly natural. Um, I mean, I, I certainly get emotionally invested in 40k. Anyone who plays competitively probably does, because if, if you're spending enough time on it for it to be important to you, you do get emotionally invested in it. Yeah, and there's no shame in like being grumpy after the tournament if you've done poorly. It's like, okay... I need to stop being grumpy before I look at this, because anytime I do this when I'm emotional, it's always extremely skewed and biased, and it's just healthier to wait until the emotions are through. Yeah. Once the tournament is over, like, your emotions are great and valid and fine and all of that, but they're not going to help you analyze your performance at the tournament. You need to be more objective about that. So... If it does take some time for you to work through that, and maybe you just need to vent for a little while to your friend or, or talk things over or whatever, then yeah, sure, do that. But make sure that when you are looking, you're getting ready to look back and do this, you're doing so in an, as objective a fashion as possible. The other thing that can help is doing it with someone else who can be like, hey, you're really emotional there. I would say that this entire process needs to have someone else. I mean, you can technically do it by yourself, but it really, really helps to have a second person, not only to A, kind of like check your emotions a little bit, but also B, to have a, a second viewpoint or a second voice, or ideally more than one person. Like, ideally you have a team or a group or something that you can kind of go over this with. Whether it's a Facebook chat, whether it's a bunch of people you knew in the real world, whether it's your drive partner, whether it's whoever you're staying at a hotel with, or what, what have you. Mm -hmm. So I think the easy first place to start when you're looking back at your, your tournament performance is we've talked before about setting goals. So the first question I would ask myself is, did I meet my goals? Did I get to where I wanted to be? And if I did or didn't, why was that? Yes. Yes, it's a very important question. It's a very, very fundamentally important question, but it's also is not going to a question that's going to take you very long to answer. I mean, it's really going to be before you've even thought down this road, you've already answered that question, right? Did I meet my goal? Yes or no? Did I get it? All right. So then the next big one you have to ask yourself, and this goes right back to the thing you were just talking about a second ago, mm -hmm. don't allow your emotions to get involved here. Did you hit it? Did you not? And why? 
what actually stood in your way. And the one that I'm going to caution every single person that listens to this episode on is the first time you say, well, if I made that die roll, I would have won. The moment you say that, you've already failed at this process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because dice are not something that you can help. You can't control the dice. You can affect how the dice are rolled in the sense of you get to choose which shooting attacks and psychic powers and whatnot you make, but the dice themselves will do what they're going to do, and you can't change that. So anytime you're blaming things on dice, then you're, you're not advancing your understanding of the game or your knowledge of the game at all. So here's a better question. It's like, oh man, if only that one die roll. Wait, how did it get to that die roll? Yes. Let me backtrack and figure that part out. And you can use that initial reaction to guide your further questions. Right. You know, if I had made that charge, I would have won the game. Why was I not closer so that the charge was shorter? Why was I not in combat already? Why did I only have one unit to charge with? Why did I not have any command points to re-roll the charge? Mm -hmm. Those are all questions you can ask yourself when you get that baseline reaction of, if I had made the charge. And that's an important thing, is don't look at what happened, look at why it happens. Yes. Because you you can say, like, what are the factors that led up to this? If you failed all your psychic powers, you can ask yourself, was my list reliant entirely on those psychic powers, and is that a problem? Mm-hmm. You can look at the factors that played into your bad luck and why those factors caused you to win or lose as a result of that luck. But the luck itself should essentially just be discarded at the very beginning of this process. Yes. So you see luck, and the moment you start going, when it was luck, then you go, well, how did the luck become even a thing that was, like, what I was counting on? Yep. Why was I banking on it? That said, there are some games that maybe you may not have been able to win. Mm -hmm. But that can be very hard to recognize. You should never be looking at them from that perspective. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's true. Like, there are some games that you are not going to win, regardless of what you do. Yep. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try and analyze those games and understand what happened and why it came down to what it was. I honestly face a lot of matchups where I walk in automatically losing pretty much no matter what I do. So it's more of how well did I struggle? How well did I lose? Are ways I analyze those games. Because I look at them in context of what they're supposed to be. Sure. And I actually wanted to jump in on that. So most of the time, not all, but most of the time when you step up to the table and you're recognizing the fact that I am, I'm not going to win this game. All right. That you step up, you look at your opponent, you look at their list, you look at yours, and you're like, yep, there's no way I'm walking away with W on this. I got to take it. And normally at that point, you kind of like some more episodes, you kind of go, okay, well, let's start looking at alternatives, play the mission, yada, yada, yada. There's still a takeaway there, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's still a takeaway from this. Is is it, oh, shit, I lost that one. Let's just write it off and kind of pretend it didn't happen. No, it is, this is viable information. Because it's likely if you ran into it once at a tournament, you're probably going to run into it again. Mm-hmm. And two, I'm kind of jumping a little bit on the gun, so I know I want to come back to this, but that tells you something very clear about your list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is massive information that you're going to walk away from. Yes. Oh, and I think that actually can be applied a little bit more broadly. Losing games 
even though it sucks, like we want to win games, not lose them. Losing games can teach you a lot about your army and your generalship. It is probably the best way to learn from the game, provided you are willing to accept those lessons. Yep. Yes, and understand that they are lessons. Look at lost games as opportunities for growth. Yeah. As unrealized potential. It's like, man, there was something I could have done that I didn't try yet. And that Mm -hmm. philosophy of analyzing them will put them in a more positive spin to help you look at them. And in addition to that, you'll be a lot more objective about it. Like, yeah, I messed up here, but I can be better because I messed up. Yeah. Also, inspiration. That's a big one for me that I see a lot of people refuse to see. They have that bad beat or it was a close game and I almost won the tournament, but I lost. And again, kind of going back to beating a dead horse here, you know, they kind of let their emotions run away with them on this. But there's so many times in big events or even practice games or whatever where I'll lose and I'll lose my game. And rather than just taking away looking at my list or looking at my playstyle, I don't think a lot of people realize how many times that there's some direct inspiration, either play style or list building style or, or deployment style that my opponent did that may have given him that edge in my game that I easily could utilize and adopt in my play. Yeah, absolutely. Especially at a big tournament, you will probably see a lot of stuff you have encountered before, regardless of how experienced you may be. And hopefully you can take something away from that that is useful to you, whether it is a sort of a strategy or a particular list building feature or something like that. There's hopefully something you can bring away from all that. And those losses are the probably the best source of that information. Absolutely. Those times you lost are going to be the most fruitful to get you that info. Mm-hmm. This is something I learned in college is the idea of feministic analysis, which is where you ask the other question, the, op- the question the opposite way. So it's like, instead of why did I lose this game? Why did my opponent beat me? Yep. That's also very, very useful. Like, that's a really good way to turn it around. Not why did I lose, but why did they win? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And contrawise, not what did I do wrong, but what did they do right? Yes, yes, that's exactly, uh, that, that was like the best way to word what I was just trying to say. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Sean. That's, that's brilliant, because that is exactly it, is not did I make this die roll or whatever, it's what did he do to beat me? What did he do that just gave him that edge and took me down? Mm-hmm. Those are the things, the moment you figure out what those are, those are the things you need to latch on to and say, okay, is this something I'm doing? Is this something I could do? Is this something I should be doing? Mm-hmm. Or is this something I can cut them off from doing to me again? Exactly. Yes. Well, let's let's kind of move this on to the next big step, and I think the place that most people will jump to when they look at changing things after a tournament is, how did your list do? Because mm-hmm. most people, after a tournament, look at changing their list for one reason or another. There are not a lot of people that are just going to keep playing the same list for six months straight. <laughs> <laughs> It does happen, but those are fairly rare individuals and usually either very confident or very stubborn ones. Or very stuck in mono builds for reasons. I think more the latter. (laughs) Yes. Even your Grey Knights, we changed the list almost every time you took it to a tournament. Even minor tweaks, little things. But that still changes. And hey, real quick, real quick though. Where did those minor tweaks come from, Shay? Fair. Ah, there you go. (laughs) 
I mean, the obvious place to start looking is, did your list have a consistent problem that it ran into? Um, Was there something you just couldn't handle? I had a list I under-practiced walking into LVO, and one of the things I realized at LVO was this list had problems killing things turn one. And that is a pretty fundamental list flaw in the ITC system. It can be. I mean... Unless you have a way to guarantee a way to make those points back later on. Yeah, it could be a hindrance. It didn't have a good way to make the points back, and it didn't have a good way to protect itself from giving up a kill. Sure. So it was basically a two-point swing for my opponent most games. I was like, this is not really acceptable. Right. Well, and we're going to talk about the omission quite a bit here in just a moment, but that can definitely be a flaw in a list, is like, if you are giving up points, that can be a problem. That's like a thing you're starting to look at. It's like, wait, I don't get kills turn one. Uh-oh. Sure. Something you were just mentioning a second ago, Sean, was were there things that you encountered in their, in their list that you were not able to overcome or that you just didn't expect and your list just couldn't handle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a big one for me uh, post-LVO, actually, because that was the list that took me down was uh, Alex Harrison's mm. um, The Seven Eldar Flyer list. And a lot of it was because, I'll be honest... I didn't anticipate. I'm like, well, there's going to be a bunch of magic boxes, there are ITC missions. Like, in my mind, there was a lot of things stacked against why you shouldn't bring that list, so I really wasn't prepared for it. And then when I faced it, I realized way too late, I didn't have the tools to deal with it. Like, I literally just did not have the tools Mm -hmm. to deal with that list. And that was a major issue because I probably should have anticipated and maybe thrown in a couple things to help me deal with it on the off chance I encountered that. So, I mean, that was a prime example of that exact situation. Yeah. Yeah. Your list, as I recall, did not have very much anti-tank in it. Nope. (laughs) Which, as it turned out, was a big problem when you fought a list that was seven very hard-to-kill vehicles. Flying tanks! (laughs) Yes. And I think that's one thing that, like, it's very easy to look at is kind of like, does my list have the tools to reach out and deal with the lists that we're seeing these days. Mm-hmm. Another one I actually look at a lot was, is there something I had too much of? Yes. Again, this is asking the opposite questions. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people think of, well, uh, you can't have too much of something. Oh, you can. And I mean, that's true. If it were free, you couldn't have too much of something. But the reality is when you're writing a list, everything has an opportunity cost. If you're buying a Meltagun, you're not buying a Flamer. And if you have 35 Melta-Guns, maybe you should get rid of a few of them for a few Flamers so you have a way to kill all those Horde armies out there. So look at what you have too much of. If you're consistently ending the game with, you know, tons and tons of anti-tank weapons but desperately struggling to kill infantry, you need to look at rebalancing your list because you have too much anti-tank and not enough anti-infantry. Or vice versa. It can go the other way as well. Yes. And uh, sometimes it's like, oh, I thought this matchup was going to be better for me. It turns out it was trash fire is a different problem. Yes. If you discovered that the matchup does not play out the way you thought it did, either because you don't know the list well enough or that there are you know, certain features of the list that you didn't anticipate or whatnot, then you probably need to change what you're doing. Mm-hmm. By a similar token, look at your list and say, did my list do what I needed it to? Uh, We talked about in our list building episode, like, have a plan for your army. Well, this is the time when you look at your plan and say, did my plan work? Did it do what it needed to do? Mm -hmm. And if not, what went wrong and and what did I need more of or what do I need to change or what do I need to do less of? The other thing I was going to comment was 
Also remember, did I commit to executing my plan every time? Because... Yeah, sure. You know, sometimes I get excited and I don't execute my plan. Was that what happened here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a big one, actually. Because, like, uh, you know, I have all these plans of how this list is supposed to run. And if I didn't run it that way, well, then a lot of this information you're walking away from really isn't very valid. Because you, you kind of didn't stick to what you played out to begin with. But yes. Yeah. One of the things that I a comment you just mentioned, and it's a term I use a lot when list building and also helping people with list building. And you were just talking a minute ago where, you know, if I've got 32 Melteguns, maybe I should swap some of those out for, you know, a couple Flamers or whatever. And, and a term I like to use a lot, and you and I have even used this extensively when we talk about lists, is diminished return. Yes. Yeah. It's a very valuable, valuable term in list building because a lot of people, I don't know how many times someone's like, well, maybe you should put, you know, this unit in if you're building a towel list and maybe I want uh, more whatever that kills infantry, more fire warriors or whatever. And I look and I'm like, well, but I've already got two thirds of my list that is really good at killing infantry. Why would I want one more unit that's good at killing infantry? At that point, at some point, something's not going to be killing infantry because I've already killed it all. Yeah. Yeah. So at what point am I lacking something else to have this massive redundancy of being able to do this one thing? And the question in that point is diminished return. Is Do I have so much of this that portions of it aren't actually going to be doing that thing I brought it for because there's too much of it? Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's a big one that I, I heavily, heavily... And the only way you're going to learn that information specifically is in these this post-tournament one games and practice games and stuff. But post-tournament's going to be a big one where you're really going to... That's going to be glaringly obvious to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the final thing I'd kind of put out there on lists, and this is like sort of your, your final verdict, and it's something that I do a lot, and I know Josh does as well, is I look at my army, and now that I've answered these questions about my army and the way I've played it and whatnot, I ask myself, do I need to modify my list because I am going to change something? almost never keep a list the same, or do I need to rebuild it from the ground up because the idea is sound, but perhaps the the execution on it or the way I've done it is just not achieving the goals that I need, or do I just need to scrap the idea because it is not viable either because the codex just can't do that or because the meta has changed in a way that makes my list no longer useful? Mm-hmm. I played a Tau Big Suits list for a while. It was double double Storm Surge, triple Riptide. But when knights got really popular and everyone was building to gun down all those knights who all have three up invulnerables and are T8, not T7. That list was dead. (laughs) Yeah. So at a certain point, I just looked at that army and I said, this army doesn't work anymore. And I put it aside. And there's times when, like, we've talked before that, like, there needs to be some some moments of cold, hard analysis where you look at your army and, and you say, is this bad now? Because sometimes it is. You and I have hit that, hit that exact point in a list-building conversation more times than I can count. Oh, absolutely. You and I will be spitballing lists. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, no, this just literally cannot work. It never will work mm-hmm. because of this. And we've hit that with Shaylin's lists as well. It's, it's something you will run into no matter what your goals are and what your desires for the army are. So you have to be willing to abandon a list at a certain point. It doesn't mean you have to throw away everything you've learned. Hopefully everything you learned informs whatever new list you're bringing. In 8th edition, the meta changes pretty quickly and can shift in some very radical 
ways. So you need to be prepared to rebuild your list from the ground up if it comes down to it. Yes. And sometimes, again, the emotions, it's like, oh, man, I have to get rid of this list I spent so long working on in this army. And it's all perfect. And it's like, you know what you do? Sometimes you just have yourself a good cry and then you get get to the model table and start building the things you need next. Yeah. And I think you, you really hit it on the head, Sean, with, you know, sometimes it is just minor tweaks. Yeah. It's just a couple, couple minor things here and there. Sometimes you literally just, you're starting over. The big one that I want to caution for a lot of people is if you are doing tweaks to a list, if you're, you're you know, I'm going to, uh, this this unit was mad, this, this war gear, whatever, be careful in how wide, how, how broad you stroke those changes too fast because what uh, I see a lot of people end up doing is like, well, I didn't like this didn't work, this didn't work, this didn't work, and then they change this, 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 and three of those and that, and then they go into their next tournament and it didn't quite work the way they want, but now they don't actually know which part didn't work because you just put so many different variables in that you actually don't know which variables were still good or which ones are now bad. And so if you're going to make tweaks like that, those are the times where I recommend small tweaks and then seeing how it goes. But if you're going to rebuild it, then just rebuild it. Don't try and hold on to something that may or may not have actually worked because you're not going to know now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need a certain amount of play testing to get a feeling for this. And if you don't have time to do much testing between one tournament and another, then you probably need to moderate how much you change things. You may still make some small changes, but you shouldn't be making massive redesigns of the list if you don't have a lot of time to do some playtest games. Mm-hmm. As we went back to like the list's core idea and whatever... Sometimes one of the things you learn in the list is, oh man, I'm not using this unit correctly. I need to practice using this unit correctly. And you shouldn't change your list until you understand that unit works. Yeah. Avoid what my family likes to call the pilot error. Yeah. Right. Well, I think we're going to talk quite a bit about pilot error in just a second here. Uh, But before we do that, why don't we head on down to the airfield and speak to the pilots, and then we'll come back and talk about their errors. Um, I think Ser Schmooples has something to say to me. Schmooples? Him again? Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god! Let me tell you about this amazing tournament I went to last year. It was the Boardroom Brawl GT in Grand Forks, Canada. This year, they're doing it again, August 3rd and 4th. It includes a post-game barbecue on Saturday, which is the best social thing ever. Also, fantastic terrain that is just super cool and kooky and engaging and some of the most finest players you will ever meet. Totally worth the trip to Canada for. Please go, guys. They're Northwest Area Gamers. If you're looking for a major ITC event happening in the later end of the year here, think about Stumptown Stomp. It's a charity event, and at only $55, the majority of which does go to charity, you can get in for two full days of gaming on November 16th and 17th, and it comes with a potluck lunch on the first day of the event. There are a variety of prizes, raffled as well as awarded, for both painting, sportsmanship, overall, and generalship. So come on down to Guardian Games and give it a spin.
And we are back, having harassed the pilots sufficiently. Gotta ask, at what point yeah. did storks become a acceptable weapon practice in warfare? I gotta know. I mean, they're pretty old, honestly. Them beaks is big and pointy. <laughs> Wait, we're still talking about storks, aren't we? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. You ever seen a, a, a full-grown stork coming towards you? They're... They're big animals. Yes. I'm going to do a small apology to the listeners. I have locked a drunk, drugged cat in the room with me because she is too drugged to jump on furniture. Is this a confession? Should we call the police? Uh, she'll be fine because in half an hour I will release her or she'll fall asleep and not care. But <laughs> she is she has just hit a bookshelf. Because they will have paid the ransom by then. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, she is a cute ball of half-fluff, because Naked Cat with a little bit of fluff is half-fluff. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about uh, looking at your performances in general, because we talked about your list and how that all did. Honestly, I think much more common and much easier to try and overlook, because no one likes to admit it, is the mistakes and the choices you made as a general, and how they affected your performance. Where did you screw up? Because you did. Even the very best Warhammer players out there make a lot of mistakes. I've talked with Brandon Grant and Reese and Ben Jurek and a bunch of really good players after their games, and they come away from their games saying, I, I really messed up this one, I could have done better here, I only barely pulled that one off. And even when they win, they look back at these things and look at where they failed. And that's why they're very good players, because they're willing to confront these failures and try to move past them. Exactly. So, fail forward. Use your failure to launch yourself higher. Absolutely. Uh, we talked earlier about how like you, the best way to learn is from failures, and, and a big part of that is because it's easy to see where you made a mistake when you lose a game. But even when you win a game, ideally you do want to be looking at things and say like, you know, I won that, but I didn't need to move that unit into range for heroic intervention, or there was no reason for me to be on the first floor when I could have been on the third to make his charge a lot harder. Mm -hmm. There's always stuff like that that you could be improving. And I actually find that there are two kind of broad categories of errors that it's very useful to differentiate into. There's tactical errors, which are basically errors in execution. I should have shot some of my guys from this unit over here. I didn't need to fire all of them at that thing. Or overcommitting or undercommitting, for example. Or moving places you didn't need to be necessarily. Or basically errors in the way you did things even though the your plan itself was sound. That would be what I'd describe as a tactical error. A strategic error would be making an error in your overall game plan. Uh, for example, my plan was to hold back and stay out of his range and let him come towards me, except he didn't come towards me because he controlled all the objectives, so I lost. That's a strategic error, because that's an error in what you were intending to do. You executed the plan correctly, it's just that the plan lost you the game. Yes. How true that winds up happening. And here's a caution. A lot of players will get caught up in the tactical errors and not analyze their strategic errors. Strategic errors are more meta. 
you have to step back and really look at the game as a holistic thing rather than as specific instances. An instance is tactical, strategic is overall. Yeah, and strategic are also by far the harder to identify because you need to look at could my plan have worked? Not so much did it work, because that's like how you execute it, but could my plan have worked? And that's not always easy to see, because you will typically make both. You will make both strategic errors and tactical errors, and you need to separate those out and recognize which is which, and know when one was causing the other or one was independent of the other. One of my buddies up here in the Northwest plays a, a similar sort of Eldar flyer list to the one I do, and he was telling me about how he often struggled with the orc matchup, and I was very surprised at that, because I said, well, you, you have, like, five wave serpents, that's enough to kill a lot of orcs, and he's like, yeah, I realized that recently, but I've been trying to play defensively with them and stay out of range, rather than move the wave serpents forward and get in and use all their guns. So that's a very good example of, like, a strategic error. It's like, his plan was doing what he wanted it to, it's just the, the plan wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And this is back to something I harp on all the time, is I try to think turns ahead. So if the answer is, when you think turns ahead and you realize that you thought the wrong way, or that it didn't add up the way you were planning to, that's strategic. Yeah. And it might be caused by tactical, but that's strategic as well. For sure. This is also where Shay's earlier comment about uh, you need to ask sort of the opposite question to what you were looking at can be very useful, because the hardest part about trying to recognize these sort of gameplay errors is figuring out what could have worked instead, or what would have been a better choice, because you're positing a very big hypothetical. So sometimes looking at it from the perspective of you know, sort of the inverse of what you have did can be a very useful way to approach the problem. Yes, and I do that all the time because that's what art school taught me to do. Yeah, if you look at like, oh, you know, my units weren't able to last long enough because, you know, he had too much firepower, maybe the question is not how could I have made my units last longer, but maybe the question is how could I have gotten rid of his firepower faster? Mm -hmm. Or if you're looking at like... I was ahead of him in the early turns, but he was ahead of me in the late turns, then maybe you need to look at, like, okay, is there a way that I could have consolidated my lead? Or kind of asking the inverse question, how could I have conserved my forces better? Mm -hmm. And anytime you do this, you're going to be looking at a lot of different options, because one of the most, the hardest things about 40k is that there are innumerable options, ways you could have moved abilities you could have used, ways you could have spent your CP on stratagems, all these kinds of things. There are literally trillions of different ways any given game could have gone just based on the choices you made to say nothing of the way the dice were rolled. So it's an incredibly complex problem that you're trying to crack open, but hopefully you're able to see where the broad strokes of the game were going after it's over. Uh, because you do have the benefit of hindsight at this point, is you can look at your opponent's list and say, oh, he was playing very aggressively. And then that should answer your question of like, okay, what could I have done in response to his aggressive play? Should I have countered it with aggressive play of my own? Should I have played defensively? Should I have gone for points? There are lots of ways you could do things, but 
hopefully you are able to try and pick apart things after the fact and understand what tactics would have worked there. And another thing to also remember is there's layers of analysis here. It's like when, you, when you're doing art, you actually step away from your work two feet, five feet, and ten feet, and sometimes even 25 feet to really see all the layers of it. And you need to look at your games these ways, too. It's like, yes, okay, it's this minute moment to this phase, to this turn, to the early three turns, to the last three turns, and then the overall. And you need to look at your game all of those different ways because you're going to see different things at each spot. Yeah, there's because there's definitely different levels you can look at. Like we talked a little bit with the tactical and strategic. Um, mm-hmm just a little more nuance there because you can look at individual units, groups of units, sections of the battlefield, etc. And you can look at those individual units across these little timestamp stepbacks I gave you too. Yeah. Yes. And actually that does bring up one other thing that I think is very important to remember and this is sort of a a question that you want to ask yourself is am I completing all six turns of all my games? Yep. Mhm. Because if you're not I mean, A, you're not getting a full data set, so that's a problem. But also, you're not getting all the points you need to get. If your goal is to score as well as you can in a tournament, you need to be getting all the points you can get. And if you're missing out on turns of the game, you're missing out on points. So one of your goals for a tournament, if you're not doing it already, should be finishing all six turns of all of your games. Yes. And if you find you're not doing that, you need to adjust your list or you need to start playing with the time clock. Something I see a lot of people when they like are doing their practice games and they're prepping for a tournament. A lot of times, guys, you'll go to turn two, turn three, and the game is pretty well decided and either re-rack for another one or just kind of call it and move on. And what I see happens to a lot of people in that situation and has happened to me myself and multiple times is if you aren't used to going all the way to the end of your clock using that last five minutes or that last ten minutes and being used to being under the pressure of, you know, I'm under the gun, I'm having to make fast decisions, roll fast dice, make fast movements. If you're not used to being in that position and your opponent is, nine times out of ten, you're going to lose your game right there. Mm -hmm. Because that's when you will make lots of mistakes. Yeah. And I'm speaking from experience on this. You will make a lot of mistakes and you're going to walk away like, why, why did I do that? Wait, why did I do that? And you did that because that time... And that pressure is something you were not used to because you never put yourself in it. Mm -hmm. So that's one I highly, highly, highly recommend when you're doing your practice games. When you start getting like, you know, you got your list dialed in, you got that last week where you're kind of just getting games and games and games with your buddies or whatever. Those are the times where you're at that point where you need to be playing every game like you're actually in the tournament. Whatever aids you're using, whatever dice you're using, whatever templates you're using, whatever, all that stuff, and play it with the chess clock. Play it all the way to the end and play to the time and be ready for that pressure because if you're not used to it, it's going to cost you. Yeah. Back to when we were talking about practice games, this is why hard practice is super critical because that's what's going to give you those tournament execution skills like Josh was talking about there. Yeah. And recognizing that you have a weakness there, like, oh man, I didn't practice playing fast. That is legitimately just... You need to practice that. Mm-hmm. It is a skill like anything else. If that's something a standard you're not meeting, then you need to work on it. Because with the implementation of chess clocks and be- them becoming a very common thing, playing to time is a skill and it's something you need to learn. And it's something that catches even the best players off guard because it's a, it's a relevant part of the game. It's a limitation you have just like any other. Just like you have a finite number of points, a finite number of CP, and a finite amount of time. 
Yep. Let's talk about, I think, one of the big ones that I think does catch a lot of people off guard, uh, and that's the mission. Because it's all well and good to look at how your army performed and how you did and everything, but a lot of people can mess up the mission, especially if they're not familiar with the missions that they're playing. And how your list and whatnot interact with the mission is very important. I cannot tell you how many times I've encountered a player that's like, I've never played ITC missions before at the start of the tournament. I'm like, oh dear. That's that's going to hurt you. Yeah, and you hopefully you're getting to practice the missions before you go to a tournament. Because some tournaments do unique missions, but for the most part, tournaments these days have fairly standardized missions for whatever region you are playing in. Uh, if you are West Coast, you're probably seeing a lot of ITC. If you are more towards the East Coast, that can vary through the, the Warzone missions, the Nova missions, the Adepticon missions, etc., depending on what sections of the country you're in. But typically, most regions will have a, a mission set that is fairly common to them, and hopefully you're getting to practice with that. Or know what those are. <laughs> yes. Um, we're going to talk mo more, a little more about the ITC, just because that's what we typically play in our each of our areas. But these same ideas apply to every mission set. They're Honestly, the, the same concepts are very broadly applicable. Yes. In ITC, there you have your primary and your secondary missions. So the really easy first place to look at is how well did you do on the primary each, each game? Were you managing to at least hold even or ideally pull ahead on the primary? Because if your list is not designed to either kill more or hold more, then you're going to be in trouble. So another thing to know is a lot of mission packs let you record your scores, and you can see mm -hmm. if you have a part where your army starts to fold and starts to lag on the primary, it's like, oh man, I just like, I do really well in early game. Like by turn four, it, it starts to turn around on me. Why? Yeah. Because now you can look at your score over the game. It's like turns one through three, I got down. What's going on in turns four, five, and six? Yeah. This is one of the places where keeping good data is extremely important. And either holding on to the tournament pack or recording it for yourself, if that is something you have to do because, you know, they don't provide a tournament pack or they want you to turn it in or what have you. But have this data available so you can actually look back and not just work off your impressions of things, but actually look at like, okay, well, turns one, two, and three, I did really well. Actually, maybe I didn't. I got two points, three points, and two points. That's not really good enough. So it's important to have this available to actually look back at, if at all possible, so that you're, you're working off something concrete here. And it's easy to fix this with smartphones. Yeah, your memory will, I guarantee, mess with you. Even something as simple as on the way home from the event. Yep. You will remember things differently unless it's written down. Yes. Even autistic memories are not that invaluable. Well, yeah, everyone's memory is influenced by their perceptions and the way they feel and want about things. So, by all means, have some, some hard data to work off of, because that will give you a, that, that'll help correct those mental errors. You can't tell yourself, well, I did really well on the first couple of turns if you scored one, two, and one. Then you'll look at that, and there's no way you'll be able to say, well, I mean, I, I thought I did well, but apparently I didn't. Mm-hmm. The other half of the ITC missions, not looking at sec primaries, but at secondaries. Yes. Did I score max secondaries? Did I choose secondaries that I realized were achievable in hindsight? This is a really big one. I see a lot of players 
come into games and basically lose the game before it's even really started because they picked the wrong secondaries. Mm -hmm. So your goal should be to score 12 points on the secondaries every game. Even in losing games, that is very achievable. Yes. You won't be able to do it every time. Sometimes you will just get trashed so badly you don't get all that many secondary points. But that should be a really bad loss for you. That should be something exceptional. Or you're playing against Eldar, which are notoriously hard to do this. Or that. Even now, it's a lot more achievable. I mean, my flyer list, a lot of people get 10 to 12 points in secondaries on. Mm -hmm. It is very possible to get full secondaries every game now. So if your list is not managing to do that, or even if it's not 12, even if it's just 10 or 11, you need to be coming close to doing that if you want to have a solid shot at winning games. And if you're not managing to do that, you need to look at why. Are you not able to achieve certain secondaries? Is there a way you can change your list design to be able to do that? Are you choosing the wrong secondaries? Mm-hmm. That's a big one. Because that that is very common. I see lots of people, it's like, well, I'll take old school because it's easy. And then they look across and it's like, oh, actually, it's not that easy because the only thing I'm allowed to shoot at are two units of 30 plague bearers. And, oh, huh. Or how many times I saw people take Headhunter against the the old the old Yanari list that was floating around out there. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you got six characters, yeah, you, that you're never going to see. Yep. I mean, so taking Headhunter is a horrible choice there. Mm-hmm. Just because it's possible to max the points against a list doesn't mean you have a good chance of it. My LR Flyer list does theoretically give up full Mark for Death and full Big Game Hunter at the same time. Yeah, pretty much means they tabled you. Very few armies can actually do that. It's extremely rare. Mm -hmm. I think I've faced three lists in the past two and a half months or so that had a realistic shot at doing that. It is extremely unusual to be able to manage that. And by the same token, stuff like Kingslayer, it's like just because your opponent can give up full Kingslayer doesn't mean they're going to. Also, look at how your secondaries interact with each other. Yeah. That's a big one. I see so many people mess up. You know, you were just mentioning the fact that, yes, you could give up full big game and and full mark for death. But, I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen people like, well, you've got like 82 models or 83 models, so I'll take Reaper. And I look at them like, Mm -hmm. so I've got 83 models in my entire army and you're going to go for Reaper. Yeah. You do realize that at that point you've tabled me and you max out your secondaries anyways. Yeah. Is Reaper really the good call, or the ones that'll take, I'll take Reaper, I'll take Mark for Death, and I'll take Headhunter, because you got three big things, you got four characters, you know, and I look at them, it's same same question again, I'm like, so pretty much what you're saying is, you have to table me to max out your secondaries, Yeah. which if you table me, you've already done, why make it harder on yourself than it needs to be? And so, uh, look at the way your secondaries are interacting, because that's a big one, I see so many people failing good with this one, good with this one, and then they just rando pick this third one that just completely is out of left field. Yeah. A thing I use when I pick my secondaries, and this is just a minder since I can put it in right here, is I pick secondaries that are in line with my army's game plan. Yes. Yeah. The thing you're gonna do anyways is what you should be doing for your secondaries. If you can... You don't want to go out of your way for a secondary. Please don't try to do that for yourself. What? You mean my Tau gun line shouldn't be going for behind enemy lines? Oh man, I've been screwing that up. (laughs) (laughs) 
it can sometimes be as simple as as if his basilisks stay alive, I'm going to lose the game because that indirect fire will just kill all my vehicles. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take Mark for death on his basilisks. I have to kill them. Yeah. Exactly. I need to kill those basilisks in order to win the game. I'm going to do it. And sometimes it's even worth doing that if you won't get full points from it. Take the three guaranteed points. Yeah. Sometimes you can say, on the flip side, if you're like, well, I'm guaranteed two with this one, but I might get four with the other one, if you take that, that guaranteed two against a maybe of four, that means you're playing two points down the whole game. Mm -hmm. Can you afford to do that? I don't know, maybe you can, but you need to really look at that hard and see whether it is, whether that's doable. Yeah, like, whether you can get maximum secondaries is really big in the ITC. A flip side of that, though, is how easily are you giving up secondaries to the enemy? Yes. <laughs> some armies give up secondaries very easily, some armies do not. Most armies will give up full secondaries somehow. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible not to have your army be worth full secondaries at this point. But the question is, how easily can the enemy get those? How much can you do to stop them? Now, this is a lot less important than how many secondaries you score. Because if you win the game, you don't care how many secondary points the enemy got. Mm -hmm. But if you lose the game, you do care how many secondary points you got. Because that still contributes to your overall score. Yes. So denying the enemy secondaries is less important than scoring secondaries of your own. But it is still important because if you can deny the enemy secondary points, that may contribute to you winning the game. Yes. It can also mean that like, okay, I see what secondaries they're going for. Maybe I change my battle plan this particular battle just to make that more obnoxious for them for whatever reason. Yeah, absolutely. I have certainly adjusted things knowing that, like, okay, they're going to take this secondary against me. That means I need to play more conservatively with some of my units, or I need to be prepared to kill off their unit that's going to score recon, or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So the last thing I think that I would kind of, like, take as a an overall thing, because this kind of, like, ties everything else we've talked about together, is how is the meta shaping up? You just had a chance to go to a tournament and get a very direct window into how things are going. So what was it like? You had presumably two, maybe even three days to look at all these different armies. And if it was a sufficiently large tournament, then you can even get some very direct stats from the folks over at 40k Stats Center, which I would highly recommend checking out, both the website and the podcast. So you can get some, some very direct numbers on that sort of thing. What is, where's the meta going? What are you seeing and what are you expecting to see? Are the armies that you were expecting, because if when you build an army list, you build an army list to beat certain other armies. You don't just say, I'm going to take 11 Meltaguns because I think Meltaguns are cool. You take 11 Meltaguns because you say, I'm expecting to see this many tanks on the field. So were the armies what you expected to see? Mm-hmm. That's a big one. That's a huge one. Every tournament has its round of like kind of off kilter armies it produces sure and it's more like did i get matched up against any of those how reasonable how likely is it i get matched up against one of those the answer is not very likely so if you're like oh man i got trashed by this weird off kilter list you're looking at you're like there was one in the entire tournament Mm -hmm. right you need to put that in context of oh 
What are the odds? There is a very classic saying in uh, the military that every army builds to fight the last war it was in. Mm-hmm. And that's something you need to be aware of 40k. Don't don't build to beat the tournament you just played. Build to beat the tournament you're going to next time. Mm-hmm. So look at what you encountered and realize that everyone else is going to be shooting for that moving target as well. If you just went to a tournament and there were 10 knight players there, you're not the only one who's going to be preparing to be- beat knights next time around. Mm-hmm. Unless we're talking, there's like a 120-person tournament and there was 10 knights there. That's not a lot of knights. Well, that's still a fair chunk of the population, but not more than you would expect at this point. Mm-hmm. Again, there's context for these numbers. Yes, you, you should be looking at them in the context of what's happening overall, but look at what's becoming more popular and what's becoming less popular. If you used to see a lot of orcs, but now a lot of the orc players have switched over to other stuff, then maybe you don't need to bring quite so many anti-orc weapons. Uh, maybe you don't need to bring Vect for their grot shields or whatever anymore. Mm-hmm. But look at what your, your list is built to handle. Because this is coming back again around to your list again, because you build a list for a meta. Do you have the solutions to melee and solutions to shooting and the anti-tank weapons and the anti-infantry weapons you need? Because you're going to have to balance all of those things together, and what balance of those you need to go for is going to depend on what you're expecting to see. Mm-hmm. Here's another big one that I actually see a lot of is, are there any armies out there you need to study more and learn about? Yes. Because usually there will be a new army that you've never seen before or never seen a particular build-up before at a tournament, and if it did well, then you need to be get, getting ready for that. Or you get caught off guard from it. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people, it's like, I don't even know what Grey Knights are, and I'm like, you're about to learn something. Mm-hmm. Either I'm going to trounce you because you don't know anything and I'm better, Yes. or your army's going to kick my teeth in because... My army doesn't have a counter for you, and I don't win anyways. <laughs> right. You don't want to be caught in that off-guard status where you just, you don't know how an army functions. That's a big problem. Mm-hmm. That's a lame way to lose. Yes. True start. I think that covers basically everything. That's pretty much my process of analysis, kind of step-by-step. Do either of the two of you have anything you want to finish off the episode here with? Don't get down if you're losing a lot. That is something you need to also know is like, you're learning through stumbling and tripping and falling because that's how you learn to walk. And that's how you learn to 40k. Remember that context of like, look at the big picture. It's like, yeah, it's gonna suck right now. And then you're gonna get better. I spent an entire year losing doing nothing but losing before I finally figured out how to start winning games. It's okay. Mm hmm. We'll probably have an episode on sort of the the mental aspects of the game one of these days, but that's definitely, like, a thing. You're going to have times when you feel really bad about the game. I've had them. I know Shaylin's had them. I know Josh has had them. Everyone gets that way sometimes. Mm -hmm. But the trick, it really is to just keep getting back up and keep trying again. If you're feeling burnout, it's okay to take breaks. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that pretty much covers for the episode, then. Hell yeah. If any of our listeners have any other questions or comments or would like to ask us for advice, either with their list or with something else, you can email, email us. We are in the finest hour at gmail.com. You can also contact us through our Facebook or our Patreon. 
And if you would like to contribute a little bit to that Patreon, five bucks a month gets you access to not only our private Facebook group, but also our Discord server where all the hosts kind of hang out, answer questions, post memes, maybe post some stupid music videos, give you news, kind of all the, the personal details that you won't get through the, the little bit more broad audience stuff that we post for everyone else. I would also like to say a thanks not only to our Patreons who make all of this possible, but also to Dank Muse, who has provided the music for our episode, both the intro and the intermission. Uh, you can check him out on SoundCloud or Spotify or YouTube. I'd like to thank Rylan Woodrow for doing our awesome art and Stephanie Sherman for doing our t-shirts and Kasumi for not screaming for the last 30 minutes. <laughs> and I definitely want to throw the the offer out again to anybody that is interested in advertising on In the Finest Hour podcast. Don't hesitate. Reach out to us in chat. Uh, just wanting to promote an event, uh, your business, maybe just a third-party company. Uh, don't hesitate. Reach out. You can uh, reach us at inthefinesthour at gmail.com or you can reach us on our Facebook page. All right, I think that does it for this episode. Next week, we'll be talking about a subject we touched on just a little bit earlier, which is do your research. We all need to wear lab coats. Um, I mean, I always think of myself as wearing a lab coat, no matter where I go. Is this kind of like homework? Yes. Um, It is a little bit of 40k homework, but we're going to try and make it a little bit more interesting than that. So hopefully no one is too put off by the whole idea. That's what my government teacher said, too. <laughs> this isn't government, Josh. <laughs> this is your hobby. If anyone in this hobby is turned off by a couple hours of reading, then maybe this is not the game for them. <laughs> couple hours of reading? Shoot. <laughs> That's like half a codex. <laughs> it depends on how thoroughly you read. Right. <laughs> so, for In the Finest Hour, I've been Sean Morgan. Shailen Allen. And Josh Death. Thanks for listening. Wow.